Stop what you're doing and listen. It all goes back to listening. If I tell the truth, it's because I tell the truth. Then I think that's when real listening happens. Like, I just, I share my voice. Now, I don't think that's a bad thing to do. You can talk to people. You know, you can really have a dialogue. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be really hard. And we're going to have to work at this every day, but I want to do that. I listen to gain perspective. Listening requires a lot of humility. It requires you to sort of put your own worldview on pause. Those are things uh, that don't require rocket science. The more that we listen, the better we become. Every conversation we have is an opportunity to grow. Hi, how are you all doing? It's Jonathan. Today on the Listen Podcast, I had a really thought-provoking and honest conversation with two PLU faculty, Teresa Chavatari and Kevin O'Brien. Teresa is a sociology professor, and Kevin O'Brien is the Dean of Humanities. During this podcast, I was intrigued by Kevin and Teresa's openness and willingness to talk about how they came to terms with their whiteness and how they continue to deal with their whiteness on a day-to-day basis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pacific Lutheran University's Listen Podcast. My name is Jonathan Adams. I am a proud PLU grad. Shout out to the class of 2016. Woot woot. And I'm currently a graduate student at the University of Southern California studying social work. Fight on. (laughs) Today, I'm joined by two incredible PLU faculty members for a discussion about white privilege. And to start, can both of you introduce yourselves? My name is Teresa Chavatari, and I'm a professor in the sociology department at PLU, and I also chair the Women's and Gender Studies program. And I'm also affiliated with Humanities Washington. And I'm Kevin O'Brien. I'm the Dean of Humanities here at PLU and also teach in the Religion Department. Yes, thank you so much. Our topic today is white privilege and whiteness in the context of everything in this country and the world and institutions. First question that I want to begin with both of you is, to your recollection, is there a definitive time, activity, or person who influenced your understanding of anti-racism? And can you tell me a little bit about that? For me, I came to anti-racist work as many sort of progressive white women did through the feminist movement. As an undergraduate, being very involved in feminist organizing on my campus at Santa Clara University in California and taking courses in women's studies and learning a lot about feminism and about gender inequality. And of course, because gender inequality intersects so closely with uh, with other systems of oppression, including racial inequality, that was really the door that opened for me to explore these issues. And a primary author who was really my first exposure to uh, feminist thinking from a woman of color is Bell Hooks. Gotta go to the classics. Yes, Bell Hooks. Yes, yeah. Bell Hooks. <laughs> for me, uh, it was school for me very much. And I think the most formative was I went to seminary, started grad school, getting my master's at seminary at a school called Union Theological Seminary in New York and got to take a class with a famous black liberation theologian named James Cone. And that was the first time that I realized, really understood two things. First, that any discipline, theology included, looks totally different if you come from a really different experience. And he sort of showed me that theology written by black people is and should be different from theology written by white people. And then second, that I, as a white person in the United States, had missed out on my own story, on the story of my nation, on what was happening in my nation, what needed to happen, by thinking that racism was about other people, that that wasn't part of my legacy. And so um, understanding that slavery is in my history on the side of privilege and perpetrator, lynching is in my history on the side of privilege and perpetrator, and that to understand myself and my country and make either any better, I need to be understanding that story, be learning that story from the people who went through it. And I think a commonality in both of your stories is that there is just a there's a process of understanding what 
whiteness is and what privilege is and how to process that. For Teresa Chavatari, it was through the feminist movement. And then for you, it was still in the academia work that you were yeah. able to see that there was a distinction and there was a difference. So can you tell me a time where it was just like, for you, racism was just in your face and you were like, I have a choice to either see it or not see it? Well, for me, it was has been the last two days, honestly, mm-hmm. where it has been... It is in all of our faces today. I mean, today certainly not in, in these last couple of days, certainly not the first time that I've seen it. But that is what is just looming large for me right now is the the results of our presidential election and the way that, that whiteness and white supremacy has been just embodied through this process. And I have been so aware of my race and my whiteness over these last couple of days. And it, and it's interesting because, of course, I have an intellectual understanding of my whiteness and what that means. But in my daily life, honestly, I don't think about it very much. And that's like mm-hmm. like poster child of white privilege right there. But this election for me has really just brought it front and center. Uh, and, I, and I'm struggling with it. Uh, struggling with it. I'm having a hard time really, really knowing how to how to engage with it in a productive way. Let me echo all that. But then uh, talk about a time much earlier in life, a long time when I think I pretty much chose not to see racism as it stared me in the face. Uh, I went I grew up in Atlanta. I went to a school at the time Atlanta was in a busing program. So I went to a school that was 49 percent white and 49 percent African-American. Almost all the African-Americans were bussed in from a neighborhood far away. And I was walking to school a couple blocks. Um, I thought of that as a sort of beautiful post-segregation school. Um, because there were black people and white people together, it did not occur to me that some people had to ride on a bus for an hour and 20 minutes and I had to walk for 10. And I think, uh, you know, nobody nobody used mean words or said really mean things to the black people. So I thought racism was over and I thought I wasn't looking at racism. And it was years later, looking back at it, that I saw racism is a system and part of its power is that it, that it hides itself. And I think, you know, like Teresa says, that's also something... We're wrestling with right here today. Today, yesterday, and the day before. And I think every day, even before the election, is something that is very prevalent in a lot of individuals' lives. And I love how you both have framed it. It's today I have to deal with it. I have Mm -hmm. to see that. And even for myself, I live it every day. Mm -hmm. So it's just we Mm -hmm. all have a different experience. But then, again, we have a different framework of what we look at it because we can look at whiteness and racism from a structural standpoint, an institutional standpoint, and as well as an academic standpoint. But we don't really talk about the day-to-day instances Mm -hmm. of things that we get away from Mm -hmm. and remove ourselves from that. Mm -hmm. And so with things happening today, how do you feel that academia is prepared to have those conversations on the day-to-day basis? Well, I think at a place like PLU, we are well prepared, not perfectly prepared, mm-hmm. but I think we are, we are well prepared. We, um, I mean, I spent all day in my classes today sort of debriefing and engaging with students and, and whiteness was a primary piece of the conversation. It is, you know, PLU students are asking tough questions. They're holding us, holding me accountable to my positionality and, and my points of view. And we're, they're doing it for each other and we're all doing it for each other as part of this community. I think there's always room for more. You know, I think some faculty members and some students are more comfortable engaging in these conversations than others, even at a place like PLU. And so I see it as part of my responsibility as an educator and as a colleague to model the behavior for uh, for students and and for my colleagues. 
I make a lot of mistakes, as Jonathan knows. He's he's witnessed it, and he's <laughs> helped me come to terms, and he's helped hold me accountable to it. And we have to do it. We're going to make mistakes, and we have to keep doing it anyway. And by we, I'm particularly thinking about those of us who identify as white. But I think yeah. in some ways it's true for all of us. Yeah, I, I want to agree with that, talk a little, and then ask you a question if I can, Teresa. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think we are better equipped than most at an academic institution to do this because racism is so complicated and so wrapped up in all the other systems that we live and breathe and so hidden that we need to be able to unpack it and we need to be able to take time to think about it. It's such a mess of a wicked problem that uh, to be in a space where people expect solutions tomorrow, where people expect Mm. give me the answer Mm -hmm. is really toxic. And so I think a place where we are designed to think critically. We are designed to, to unpack things slowly and let ourselves work on things is really crucial and why we need academic spaces. I think the question, and maybe this is for both of you, that, that I have about how prepared we are, particularly at PLU, I think in lots of ways we are the perfect place to talk about racial issues. I worry sometimes we're not great at disagreeing with each other. We're not great at sort of openly calling out. Other people who make mistakes without worrying, oh, I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings. Oh, this is disrespectful. And so I guess I wonder, do you think we're we're more ready than I do? Or do you think that's a particular piece we need to work on? Maybe both of those things, yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, I think there is there are spaces where where people are comfortable doing that and that people feel skilled to be able to do that. I know it's it takes work to get there. I mean, I spend a lot of time in my classes to to create a space where students are are comfortable disagreeing with me and disagreeing with disagreeing with each other. So it doesn't just automatically happen. And and sometimes it gels and it works, and sometimes it completely doesn't. And that's also just you yeah. know the mix of personalities uh, in the room. Jonathan, what do you think? I think. It requires, like, yes to both of those. Mm -hmm. Um, And it requires an institutional space to say, hey, let's talk about this in a sense of rather than, well, we're just going to shove right down your throat because we can't always just be right. Um, And there's a form of education for the individual. So I can't individuals can't come up to me all the time and drain and drain and drain as my role i believe and others disagree that i have to continue educating because if i don't who will when you constantly speak education and educating yourself that's when you can come together as a collective within the classroom with all these different ideas and opinions supported that's when dialogue constructive dialogue can happen and so for plu i think overall and i think a lot of spaces have the issue of like I'm too afraid to bring anything up because I'm, I'm different. I'm too yeah. afraid. And it's you sh- You can't be afraid because you have these ideas. And if you want people to hear you and your voice to matter, you have to speak up. Even if you are, quote unquote, wrong or, quote unquote, right, you have to be able to develop the skills, which PLU helps to do with the critical reflection piece, to develop the skills to have that conversation. I think another piece to that is the is the community of care that, that we create mm-hmm. at PLU so that it is a safe place to, to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that that is also needs to be intentionally built, right? That doesn't automatically happen. Yeah, I and I think um, being a safe place to, to make mistakes, to, to say the wrong thing is so important mm-hmm. because I do, I think, speaking as someone uh, who identifies as is identified as white, there are so many times when I have said nothing because I was worried I would say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And um, and when facing a racist situation, a racist system, saying nothing is always a bad idea. And uh, trying something out or asking someone what is the right way for me to go about this is so much more healthy. Mm-hmm. So just that um, that we can be a place of care enough that we get over the fear, right? Mm-hmm. People are going to judge me. People are going to label me one of the bad ones if I speak up. 
um, and mm-hmm. say the wrong thing. If we can get past that, and I think we can, then uh, then we got lots of tools to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it kind of hits to the idea of intention versus impact. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of individuals go straight to, well, you impacted me in this way without going back and reflecting. Like, And I believe taking a step back is a part of that process of balancing those things. Because you have to look at the image from a further distance to really get the full picture. Um, and with that, I think when you're at, when you can lay out your intention before the impact you are about to state, uh, that's good. there can be a difference in yeah. communication. There can be a difference in how you handle bigotry. There can be a difference in how you handle those different kinds of conversations. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's great. That's really helpful because that's one of the challenges I have in, in a conversation I've, I've had with Kevin um, from a, a talk he gave a few weeks ago about this question of, of intention because you often hear in social justice circles that intention doesn't matter. It's all about impact. And while I understand the reasoning behind that, I also feel like intention does matter. It's not the only thing that matters. Mm-hmm. Like impact also matters. It maybe matters more. But I also think intention is important because I do think when someone is able to articulate that intention, as you stated, and articulate that they're coming from a place of, of curiosity or even a place of ignorance, like, I don't know how to say this in the right way. So I'm just going to say it this way, like that can help diffuse some of those tensions that that may emerge as part of these difficult, mm-hmm. difficult conversations and make make mistakes easier to hear for people who are impacted by it. And again, I'm not at all saying that it's only intention. Mm. And I'm just speaking for myself sort of when I receive offensive comments of one, one kind or, or another. I think the intention of where people are coming from helps me figure out how to react and how to mm-hmm. react appropriately and how to react in, in a productive way and in a way that protects myself. So I do think both of those are an important part of the, the mm-hmm. conversation. So I love your idea of like stating your intention first. That in and of itself can help facilitate the conversation. I agree. And Teresa says, we, we've had this conversation and I think I've spent too much of my life thinking the intention was all that mattered and that, boy, if I mean well, then that's mm-hmm. all okay. So I think both sides of that equation are so crucial. The, the other term that keeps coming up from what you all have said is, is this idea of trust, right? Mm-hmm. And how much mm-hmm. trust it takes to have this yeah. conversation. And also the importance, I think, of not expecting unearned trust and not always making it personal when I don't have trust. So I, as a white person, am not always going to be trusted and shouldn't always be trusted mm-hmm. because I'm coming from a system of racial supremacy, uh, of white supremacy. A student today who's African-American was, was talking about how troubled she was by the election we just went through. And we talked about it a little and I sort of asked how I could help. And we had a bit of a conversation. And then she kind of made it clear to me, you're not the one who's going to help me through this. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine times in my life when I would have been deeply hurt by, you know, how dare she not trust me? Doesn't she know how well-intentioned I am? But uh, more and more, and like like how you said, Jonathan, it's a process, right? I'm developing in this process to understand it's not about me. And if I'm not the one who can help, she shouldn't be talking to me. And that's okay. Featuring video testimony from 16 PLU students, faculty members, and staff, PLU's Listen Campaign is a collection of individual stories that provide multiple perspectives on what it means to be a community that not only embraces diversity, but also works actively in community to provide social change. Learn more at plu.edu listen. Going back to emotions, a lot of people 
even with this election, we have the term like quote unquote white tears and white guilt comes out because a lot of people just, I feel so bad. I feel right. so bad. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I'm crying. I'm crying. And it's the process st- stays in that yeah. because there's no development of emotion. There's no development of how I see things. There's no development. So how would you tell someone, how would you navigate that space if someone's in that space? Uh, well, I, I do think you need to acknowledge the emotions of where you are in mm-hmm. a moment. I think that's true for all of us. Um, and when those those emotions have ebbed a bit or and you're feeling some level of ease, I think whites, we have a responsibility to educate ourselves like we have a responsibility to move it beyond emotion to understanding our history and what whiteness has has meant throughout history. We have an obligation and a responsibility to understand and to listen to the lived experience of people of color in this country and around the world. Uh, and and then from there to act on it in whatever way makes sense to to who we are as as individuals and what our own gifts are to offer to the world. Um, so I really think that we have to process the emotion. And as you said, we have to move beyond that. And I think it's why having other whites who can help process is so important, right? That it's not when I am feeling shamed and when I am feeling upset, which does happen, right? I mean, I, I just shared with the election, like I, this the space that I've been in these last couple of days. It's not a place for me to go to people of color to be like absolved from that, right? Mm-hmm. It's for me yeah. to process yeah. it in myself and to process it with my, with white friends and, and white family members and, and to, to create that space to challenge whiteness among whites um, mm. and that we need to do that work ourselves and not rely on, on people of color to, to educate and or absolve us of, of those things. A columnist I, I really appreciate the work of, his name is Jamel Bowie, who's African-American, wrote a tweet on the night of the election that said, I thought this was going to go another way. I was wrong. I didn't realize how much they hate us. And my first response to that tweet was like, no, no, we don't all hate you. Right. It's not I'm not it's not a they. Right. And how much of that response was about my guilt and my defensiveness is the thing that it took me time to realize. But the thing that was so important to realize, because, uh, you know, I can't speak for Jamel Bowie, but I don't he wasn't talking to me. That wasn't for me. And it wasn't about me. Um, It was about his experience of this moment being black in the United States. And I think. Whenever I've been able to do things I am proud of to strike a blow for racial justice, it's when I've been very aware that it's not about me. And um, and I need to feel the guilt or whatever I might feel. But I also need to be clear that that usually isn't anybody else's issue or anybody else's problem. But I, that's so hard and is, again, a process. And I get the, I get it wrong regularly. And it requires a level of self-awareness, right? Yeah. You need to pause and pay attention and think about what is motivating my reaction here mm-hmm. and and then, you know, take steps to to do something different, right? So yes. there's a level of self-awareness here that I think is is key. Mm-hmm. With that being said, within our within the departments that we work in, within places that we go, we do a lot of different events and programs. And sometimes we get the line of we're preaching to the choir. We already hmm. these seven people show up to every single <laughs> thing. Yep. Oh, I am so happy. But how do we take that that seven, that preaching to the choir atmosphere and change it to these people have never been exposed to that? Or when we're in the classrooms, these students have never been exposed to this. How do we navigate those roads? Because it's really hard in academia when you have a strict, you have things that you need to get done so people can graduate. How do you intersect those ideas? 
well, you do it in every classroom, right? You don't only do it in sociology of race and ethnicity, right? Mm -hmm. You do it in every sociology course so that the questions and the issues do become integrated throughout the curriculum. You include it as part of first year student orientation. Like, so that is a place where everybody is there and you can start giving them the language and the understanding and, and the, the, the ways to ask questions and think through these issues to engage with, with, with different ideas. And so I think often we do need to go out of our way to make sure that we're bringing up these issues and having these conversations beyond what are typically seen as the, you know, sort of the typical and safe spaces for it. I, I agree completely. And so as, so as I keep doing, I'm just going to say, yeah, Teresa's right. And then here's a <laughs> tiny little thing I can say. Um, uh, as a scholar of religion, I, I want to speak up a little bit for preaching and for the choir, right? Um, <laughs> I think um, the thing about the choir is if the church is healthy, a whole lot of people are going to hear them sing, right? And mm. so uh, I think there do need to be some events. There do need to be some times where, yeah, you, you take the, the seven people who always show up and you recharge them and you give them some more mm. tools uh, to talk. So I guess I don't want to lose the value of those meetings either and those events. And if it's just the four loyal folks uh, who always show up, who showed up, right, give them food for the journey and the world is better for it. Uh, but also get it everywhere and get it in front of everybody and get uh, get diverse people talking about this. Amen. And how do we continue pushing people to understand it's OK to go out and do something different? I forgot the way you framed it, Teresa, but going into different areas. But how do you encourage individuals to do that kind of work, to really go out and step out of their comfort zone in the work that they're doing? Oh, that's a tough question for me to answer because I don't think I do that very well in, in my own in my own life. So I feel safe in academia. So that is a like safe place for me <laughs> yeah, to right. like have these conversations and feel empowered to have these conversations. I am less comfortable in other realms of sort of civic and, and political life. And that's partly a, a personality thing. It's it's I'm very introverted. So I don't in general, like go out there and speak about anything out in the world outside of academia. So yeah, so I, I, I don't know other than to say that I'm I'm aware of it and I take steps where I can and where I am able, right? Knowing my own strengths and my own limitations. So I think that's that for me, that has been an important realization over the last couple of years of what activism looks like and what like racial justice and even feminist activism looks like. I've never been one of those people who felt comfortable like out there with with a protest sign and like in like in a march. I've done that several times and it just never felt right. And I always felt like such a failure, like a, a failed feminist and a failed um, activist uh, because because that just wasn't my space. And that was like how I was defining activism. But in the past couple of years, I've realized that my work as a teacher, my work as a scholar, my my work, part of my motivation to partner with Humanities Washington was to um, to engage in public sociology, to bring these ideas outside of academia, to bring them to a broader audience, but in a way that was using my strengths um, and and sort of my calling, my vocation, right, and how I can uh, in, enact that in the world, right. And I think it is so important to have the protesters out there and and people doing that work, uh, and the other work is important too. And so I think for any of us, it's finding our niche, like where are our strengths and where where are what are our gifts and where can we offer them in a way that it's going to have the most impact. Yeah, I think I think I just add to that the power of of an invitation. Um, uh, I spent the first two years when I was in college, um, 
feeling really supportive of and and wanting success for all the events that the Women's Center on my campus did, but kind of thinking, I probably don't belong there, right? They don't want to see me. Um, and uh, somebody invited me to come with her to a Take Back the Night rally. And I said, is it okay if I come? And she said, yes. And I went and it was amazing to be there. And um, for the next two years, when I realized many of these events are really open to me, I really am invited. I could go, I could support, I could work with people. I probably would have spent four years not going if somebody hadn't said, hey, would you, Kevin, would you come to this? So I do think the quickest barrier to get over is just people not being sure. Am I supposed to be there? Is, is, that, a, is that a meeting where a white person would be welcome? I don't know. I will know if somebody says, I'm going to this, please come with me. Uh, I will know then, okay, I'm allowed to be there. And probably I shouldn't you know, speak first or speak loudest or any of those things. And that's another sort of question. But I think invitations are huge. I think the something else that's like been the commonality is again self awareness. I think yeah. within any scenario and anything that we attend to do, like for me, I love to protest. I just like being and I like yelling <laughs> because what other spaces can I do that in? But and then there are those moments when my battery's off and I'm like, yeah. okay, I need to research and read more about it. So it's just mm-hmm. like I, I think again being really self aware of how you are within whatever you do and whatever that you do. Kind of connecting it back to we have the big listen campaign and that is going really well and a lot of people are receiving and a lot of people are just like, what is this? What is going on here? And for you from a faculty standpoint at PLU, how do you feel that you have received the listen campaign and what is your take on it? So I loved when it was uh, when it was revealed at Fall Convocation. I was so moved by it and so energized by it. And I immediately thought, how can I use this in the classroom? a couple of the videos I've used in class to really to set the stage and start the conversation about how do we listen in this classroom? You know, often at the beginning of the semester, you have the conversation about, you know, learning together and how to have productive conversation and what are discussion guidelines and all of that. And I use that as the starting point for uh, for the class to to come together and decide how they, you know, how they want to learn with each Mm -hmm. other and be with Mm -hmm. each other. And what does it mean to be part of a learning community together? I'm taking that assignment and stealing it. And I hope I give you I hope I remember to give you credit, Teresa. I I think one of the things the other thing I'd say about uh, my wife is uh, elementary school teacher in Kent. And so she drives by two listen billboards on her way to and from work every day. And that, that was one of the first ways I encountered it. And it was really great. When she came home and said, what's PLU up to here? Like, what's going on? What am I seeing? Mm. And that started a conversation for us, right? And so I love the idea that people all over Pearson King County are saying, what's PLU up to here? And uh, and who are they listening to and why? Mm. And then I think the video is a great way to say that we create space for people to express themselves. And that gets back again to this self-awareness thing, right? Because I think the path to self-awareness is some level of empathy, some level of understanding what other people's experience is. Because I I can only be aware of myself when I recognize, oh, Jonathan, you've gone through the world in a different way than I have. Um, and that's that empathy comes when I actually hear your story uh, and don't just assume it must be just like mine and I know everything I need to know about you. So it's been it's been great. It's been exciting. And it started wonderful conversations. And it will start conversations in my class after I steal Teresa's mm-hmm. idea. <laughs> And I think that is so true because when you recognize and for myself, I have to do the same thing because as a male, I have privileges where women do not have and understanding Mm -hmm. that a black woman is completely different than a black man and a white woman is different from a black man. So having that level of awareness for myself 
and this idea of listening to other stories. So I think when a lot of people say listen, it's like, oh, story time. But it's no, it's, I think it's empathetic listening. Yeah. It is like when I'm listening, I'm not having the impulse. It is sharing that space and that community and just being present in that. Mm-hmm. Whatever, whatever it is, if it's mess, if it's like goodness and graciousness, it's just existing in that. And I guess in our different faculties and our different pockets at PLU, how do you think listen is received or reflected within the department? I don't know. Honestly, we haven't talked about it. So that might be one answer to that question, right? That's not something I've talked with my colleagues about outside of convocation. Yeah, I've had the same experience Uh, with colleagues. I don't think I've talked about it since then. I will say I had the experience of being at a dinner with the Board of Regents uh, when they watched it. There was enthusiastic applause and also uh, a fair bit of conversation after that. And so I think that's a group of you know donors and alums and people really interested and invested in uh, PLU who are absolutely have followed up, have had some conversations about it. And I think those conversations are continuing. But, um, but it is... Uh, I think, I I guess I am realizing with Teresa here, the faculty hasn't been asked to do anything with it. And so most of us probably haven't. Again, we weren't invited to, right? We sort of Mm -hmm. thought that's somebody else's job. That's the billboard Mm -hmm. people. But I think we should probably take some ownership or not ownership, but uh, some investment in it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And as we're coming to a close, I have two more questions. Um, Talking about sense of belonging and being in a space where we all can exist together on an equilibrium. Um, how do you feel listen is changing that being aware of sense of belonging it does everyone have to have sense of belonging how is that for you well i appreciate the way the campaign has sparked the conversation right as kevin said with the board of regents and i think that's true sort of beyond that and just on the campus more generally and it really does it gives us a shared language to talk about these issues it, it gives us kind of just a, a shared foundation of, of this is what we as an institution value, uh, giving all of us a start in developing the skills and to begin thinking about what does it mean to be a community where where everyone does feel like they belong. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think such an important piece to that is really creating belonging for all students and staff and faculty it isn't just about welcoming people into the door, right? It requires a cultural change as an institution to change the way we operate so that it is a, a, a place where everybody feels at home. And I, I don't think we're there yet, but I, I do think this campaign uh, is a great way to, as I said, give us a shared language and some shared developing of skills to, to move in that direction. Yeah, that, that vocabulary difference between belonging and welcoming has been really helpful for me since I learned it from the listen video. I think someone says in the video, right, you can smile and hold the door. That doesn't mean I feel like I belong here. And and that distinction has been really helpful. And I think uh, I will speak for my people, right? Apparel of whiteness is I think my job is to be nice and then my job is over. And that's absolutely mm-hmm. not it. That's not enough. And I think that the campaign underlines that in the in the most helpful way, which is it gives people a voice to just say, this has been my experience of PLU. And so as we wrap up, we've talked about a lot of things today. And I think we've come up with just really great things to just think about, like self-awareness and how do we continue to be self-aware? How do we continue to talk about ourselves in a way versus intent versus impact? As we wrap up, what's a maybe a sentence or a word or two that we can tell individuals who are in this process of learning to give them encouragement, to give them hope, especially during this time? I would say uh, keep at it, be brave, 
be vulnerable, keep learning, and be in it in solidarity with with others. I think uh, somebody who's really hurting, what I want to say is take care of yourself. And then, uh, and then with what you have left, take care of the people around you. Um, and you don't need to know how to do everything or how to solve every problem to do something and solve a problem. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in to Listen Podcast. My name is Jonathan Adams, and I'm really glad to have Teresa and Kevin O'Brien here today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you.